Chapter Sixteen, Part Two of A Diary from Dixie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Laurieanne Walden. A Diary from Dixie by Mary Chestnut. Chapter Sixteen, Richmond, Virginia, Part Two. December Fourteenth. Drove out with Mrs. Davis. She had a watch in her hand which some poor dead soldier wanted to have sent to his family. First we went to her mantua maker. Then we drove to the fair grounds where the band was playing. Suddenly she missed the watch. She remembered having it when we came out of the mantua makers. We drove back instantly, and there the watch was, lying near the steps of the little porch in front of the house. No one had passed in, apparently. In any case, no one had seen it. Preston Hampton went with me to see Connie Carey. The talk was frantically literary, which Preston thought hard on him. I had just brought the Saint-Denis number of Les Miserables. Sunday, Christopher Hampton walked to church with me. Coming out, General Lee was seen slowly making his way down the aisle, bowing royally to right and left. I pointed him out to Christopher Hampton when General Lee happened to look our way. He bowed low, giving me a charming smile of recognition. I was ashamed of being so pleased. I blushed like a schoolgirl. We went to the White House. They gave us tea. The President said he had been on the way to our house, coming with all the Davis family, to see me but the children became so troublesome they turned back. Just then little Joe rushed in and insisted on saying his prayers at his father's knee, then and there. He was in his nightclothes. December 19th. A box has come from home for me. Taking advantage of this good fortune and a full larder, have asked Mrs. Davis to dine with me. Wade Hampton sent me a basket of game. We had Mrs. Davis and Mr. and Mrs. Preston. After dinner we walked to the church to see the Freeland Lewis wedding. Mr. Preston had Mrs. Davis on his arm. My husband and Mrs. Preston and Burton Harrison and myself brought up the rear. Willie Allen joined us, and we had the pleasure of waiting one good hour. Then the beautiful Maria, loveliest of brides, sailed in on her father's arm, and Major John Cox Lewis followed with Mrs. Freeland. After the ceremony such a kissing was there up and down the aisle. The happy bridegroom kissed wildly, and several girls complained. But he said, How am I to know Maria's kin whom I was to kiss? It is better to show too much affection for one's new relations than too little. December 21st. Joe Johnston has been made Commander-in-Chief of the Army of the West. General Lee had this done, tis said. Miss Agnes Lee and Little Robert, as they fondly call General Lee's youngest son in this hero-worshipping community, called. They told us the President, General Lee, and General Elsie had gone out to look at the fortifications around Richmond. My husband came home saying he had been with them and lent General Lee his gray horse. Mrs. Howell, Mrs. Davis's mother, says a year ago on the cars a man said, We want a dictator. She replied, Jeff Davis will never consent to be a dictator. The man turned sharply toward her. And, pray, who asks him? Joe Johnston will be made dictator by the Army of the West. Imperator was suggested. Of late, the Army of the West has not been in a condition to dictate to friend or foe. Certainly, Jeff Davis did hate to put Joe Johnston at the head of what is left of it. Detached from General Lee, what a horrible failure is Longstreet. Oh, for a day of Albert Sidney Johnston out west. And Stonewall... Could he come back to us here? 
General Hood, the wounded knight, came for me to drive. I felt that I would soon find myself chaperoning some girls, but I asked no questions. He improved the time between Franklin and Cary Streets by saying, I do like your husband so much. So do I, I replied simply. Buck was ill in bed, so William said at the door, but she recovered her health and came down for the drive in black velvet and ermine, looking queenly. And then, with the top of the landau thrown back, wrapped in furs and rugs, we had a long drive that bitter cold day. One day, as we were hieing us home from the fairgrounds, Sam, the wounded knight, asked Brewster what are the symptoms of a man's being in love. Sam, Hood is called Sam entirely, but why I do not know, said for his part he did not know. At seventeen he had fancied himself in love, but that was a long time ago. Brewster spoke on the symptoms of love. When you see her, your breath is apt to come short. If it amounts to mild strangulation, you have got it bad. You are stupidly jealous, glowering with jealousy, and have a gloomy, fixed conviction that she likes every fool you meet better than she does you, especially people that you know she has a thorough contempt for. That is, you knew it before you lost your head. I mean, before you fell in love. The last stages of unmitigated spooniness I will spare you, said Brewster, with a giggle and a wave of the hand. Well, said Sam, drawing a breath of relief, I have felt none of these things so far, and yet they say I am engaged to four young ladies, a liberal allowance, you will admit, for a man who cannot walk without help. Another day, the Sabbath, we called on our way from church to see Mrs. Wigfall. She was ill, but Mr. Wigfall insisted upon taking me into the drawing-room to rest a while. He said Lulie was there. So she was, and so was Sam Hood, the wounded knight, stretched at full length on a sofa and a rug thrown over him. Louis Wigfall said to me, Do you know General Hood? Yes, said I, and the general laughed with his eyes as I looked at him, but he did not say a word. I felt it a curious commentary upon the reports he had spoken of the day before. Luli Wigfall is a very handsome girl. December 24th. As we walked, Brewster reported a row he had had with General Hood. Brewster had told those six young ladies at the Prestons that old Sam was in the habit of saying he would not marry, if he could, any silly, sentimental girl who would throw herself away upon a maimed creature such as he was. When Brewster went home, he took pleasure in telling Sam how the ladies had complimented his good sense, whereupon the general rose in his wrath and threatened to break his crutch over Brewster's head. To think he could be such a fool, to go about repeating to everybody his whimperings. I was taking my seat at the head of the table when the door opened and Brewster walked in unannounced. He took his stand in front of the open door, with his hands in his pockets, and his small hat pushed back as far as it could get from his forehead. What, said he, you are not ready yet? The generals are below. Did you get my note? I begged my husband to excuse me, and rushed off to put on my bonnet and furs. I met the girls coming up with a strange man. The flurry of two major generals had been too much for me, and I forgot to ask the new one's name. They went up to dine in my place with my husband, who sat eating his dinner, with Lawrence's undivided attention given to him, amid this whirling and eddying in and out of the world militant. Mary Preston and I then went to drive with the generals. The new one proved to be Buckner, 
who is also a Kentuckian. Footnote. Simon B. Buckner was a graduate of West Point and had served in the Mexican War. In 1887 he was elected governor of Kentucky, and at the funeral of General Grant acted as one of the pallbearers. End footnote. The two men told us they had slept together the night before Chickamauga. It is useless to try. Legs can't any longer be kept out of conversation. So General Buckner said, Once before I slept with a man, and he lost his leg next day. He had made a vow never to do so again. When Sam and I parted that morning, we said, You or I may be killed, but the cause will be safe all the same. After the drive, everybody came in to tea, my husband in famous good humor. We had an unusually gay evening. It was very nice of my husband to take no notice of my conduct at dinner, which had been open to criticism. All the comfort of my life depends upon his being in good humor. Christmas Day, 1863. Yesterday dined with the Prestons. Wore one of my handsomest Paris dresses, from Paris before the war. Three magnificent Kentucky generals were present, with Senator Orr from South Carolina and Mr. Miles. General Buckner repeated a speech of Hood's to show him how friendly they were. "'I prefer a ride with you to the company of any woman in the world,' Buckner had answered. "'I prefer your company to that of any man, certainly,' was Hood's reply. This became the standing joke of the dinner. It flashed up in every form. Poor Sam got out of it so badly, if he got out of it at all. General Buckner said patronizingly, "'Lame excuses all.' Hood never gets out of any scrape, that is, unless he can fight out. Others dropped in after dinner, some without arms, some without legs. Von Borke, who cannot speak because of a wound in his throat. Isabella said, We have all kinds now but a blind one. Poor fellows, they laugh at wounds, and they yet can show many a scar. We had for dinner oyster soup, besides roast mutton, ham, bone turkey, wild duck, partridge, plum pudding, sauterne, burgundy, sherry, and Madeira. There is life in the old land yet. At my house today after dinner, and while Alex Haskell and my husband sat over the wine, Hood gave me an account of his discomfiture last night. He said he could not sleep after it. It was the hardest battle he had ever fought in his life. And I was routed, as it were. She told me there was no hope. That ends it. You know, at Petersburg, on my way to the Western Army, she half promised me to think of it. She would not say yes, but she did not say no. That is, not exactly. At any rate, I went off saying, I am engaged to you. And she said, I am not engaged to you. After I was so fearfully wounded, I gave it up. But then, since I came, etc. Do you mean to say, said I, that you had proposed to her before that conversation in the carriage, when you asked Brewster the symptoms of love? I like your audacity. Oh, she understood, but it is all up now, for she says no. My husband says I am extravagant. No, my friend, not that, said I. I had fifteen hundred dollars, and I have spent every cent of it in my housekeeping. Not one cent for myself, not one cent for dress, nor any personal want whatever. He calls me hospitality run mad. January 1, 1864 General Hood's an awful flatterer. I mean, an awkward flatterer. 
I told him to praise my husband to someone else, not to me. He ought to praise me to somebody who would tell my husband, and then praise my husband to another person who would tell me. Man and wife are too much one person. To wave a compliment straight in the face of one about the other is not graceful. One more year of Stonewall would have saved us. Chickamauga is the only battle we have gained since Stonewall died, and no results follow as usual. Stonewall was not so much as killed by a Yankee. He was shot by his own men. That is hard. General Lee can do no more than keep back Meade. One of Meade's armies, you mean, said I, for they have only to double on him when Lee whips one of them. General Edward Johnston says he got Grant a place, esprit de corps, you know. He could not bear to see an old army man driving a wagon. That was when he found him out west, put out of the army for habitual drunkenness. He is their right man, a bull-headed suaro. He don't care a snap if men fall like the leaves fall. He fights to win, that chap does. He is not distracted by a thousand side issues. He does not see them. He is narrow and sure, sees only in a straight line. Like Louis Napoleon, from a battle in the gutter he goes straight up. Yes, as with Lincoln, they have ceased to carp at him as a rough clown, no gentleman, etc. You never hear now of Lincoln's nasty fun, only of his wisdom. Doesn't take much soap and water to wash the hands that the rod of empire sway. They talked of Lincoln's drunkenness, too. Now, since Vicksburg, they have not a word to say against Grant's habits. He has the disagreeable habit of not retreating before irresistible veterans. General Lee and Albert Sidney Johnston show blood and breeding. They are of the Bayard and Philip Sidney order of soldiers. Listen, if General Lee had had Grant's resources, he would have bagged the last Yankee, or have had them all safe back in Massachusetts. You mean, if he had not the weight of the Negro question upon him? No, I mean if he had had Grant's unlimited allowance of the powers of war, men, money, ammunition, arms. Mrs. Old says Mrs. Lincoln found the gardener of the White House so nice she would make him a major general. Lincoln remarked to the secretary, Well, the little woman must have her way sometimes. A word of the last night of the old year. Gloria Mundy sent me a cup of strong good coffee. I drank two cups, and so I did not sleep a wink. Like a fool, I passed my whole life in review, and bitter memories maddened me quite. Then came a happy thought. I mapped out a story of the war. The plot came to hand, for it was true. Johnny is the hero, a light dragoon and heavy swell. I will call it F.F.'s, for it is the F.F.'s both of South Carolina and Virginia. It is to be a war story, and the filling out of the skeleton was the best way to put myself to sleep. January 4th. Mrs. Ives wants us to translate a French play. A genuine French captain came in from his ship on the James River and gave us good advice as to how to make the selection. General Hampton sent another basket of partridges, and all goes merry as a marriage bell. My husband came in and nearly killed us. He brought this piece of news. North Carolina wants to offer terms of peace. We needed only a break of that kind to finish us. I really shivered nervously as one does when the first handful of earth comes rattling down on the coffin in the grave of one we cared for more than all who were left. January 5th. 
at Mrs. Preston's met the light brigade in battle array, ready to sally forth, conquering and to conquer. They would stand no nonsense from me about staying at home to translate a French play. Indeed, the plays that have been sent us are so indecent, I scarcely know where a play is to be found that would do at all. While at dinner, the President's carriage drove up with only General Hood. He sent up to ask, in Maggie Howell's name, would I go with them. I tied up two partridges between plates with a serviette, for Buck, who is ill, and then went down. We picked up Mary Preston. It was Maggie's drive. As the soldiers say, I was only on escort duty. At the Preston's, Major Venable met us at the door and took in the partridges to Buck. As we drove off, Maggie said, Major Venable is a Carolinian, I see. No, Virginian to the Corps. But then he was a professor in the South Carolina College before the war. Mary Preston said, She is taking a fling at your weakness for all South Carolina. Came home and found my husband in a bitter mood. It has all gone wrong with our world. The loss of our private fortune, the smallest part. He intimates, with so much human misery filling the air, we might stay at home and think. And go mad? said I. Catch me at it. A yawning grave with piles of red earth thrown on one side. That is the only future I ever see. You remember Emma Stockton? She and I were as blithe as birds that day at Mulberry. I came here the next day, and when I arrived, a telegram said, Emma Stockton found dead in her bed. It is awfully near, that thought. No, no, I will not stop and think of death always. January 8th. Snow of the deepest. Nobody can come today, I thought. But they did. My girls first. Then Constance Carey tripped in, the clever Connie. Hetty is the beauty, so-called, though she is clever enough, too. But Constance is actually clever and has a classically perfect outline. Next came the four Kentuckians and Preston Hampton. He is as tall as the Kentuckians, and ever so much better looking. Then we had eggnog. I was to take Miss Carey to the Simses. My husband inquired the price of a carriage. It was twenty-five dollars an hour. He cursed by all his gods at such extravagance. The play was not worth the candle, or carriage in this instance. In Confederate money it sounds so much worse than it is. I did not dream of asking him to go with me after that lively overture. I did intend to go with you, he said, but you do not ask me. And I have been asking you for twenty years to go with me in vain. Think of that, I said, tragically. We could not wait for him to dress, so I sent the twenty-five dollar an hour carriage back for him. We were behind time as it was. When he came, the beautiful Hetty Carey and her friend, Captain Tucker, were with him. Major von Borka and Preston Hampton were at the Careys, in the drawing-room when we called for Constance, who was dressing. I challenged the world to produce finer specimens of humanity than these three, the Prussian, von Borka, Preston Hampton, and Hetty Carey. We spoke to the Prussian about the vote of thanks passed by Congress yesterday, thanks of the country to Major von Borka. The poor man was as modest as a girl, in spite of his huge proportions. "'That is a compliment indeed,' said Hetty. Yes, I saw it, and the happiest, the proudest day of my life as I read it. It was at the hotel breakfast table. I tried to hide my face with the newspaper. I feel it grow so red. But my friend, he has his newspaper too, and he sees the same thing. 
So he looks my way, he says, pointing to me, Why does he grow so red? He has got something there. And he laughs. Then I try to read aloud the so kind compliments of the Congress. But he, you, I cannot. He puts his hand to his throat. His broken English and the difficulty of his enunciation with that wound in his windpipe makes it all very touching, and very hard to understand. The Sims' charade party was a perfect success. The play was charming. Sweet little Mrs. Lawson Clay had a seat for me banked up among women. The female part of the congregation, strictly segregated from the male, were placed altogether in rows. They formed a gay parterre, edged by the men in their black coats and gray uniforms. Toward the back part of the room, the mass of black and gray was solid. Captain Tucker bewailed his fate. He was stranded out there with those forlorn men, but could see us laughing, and fancied what we were saying was worth a thousand charades. He preferred talking to a clever woman to any known way of passing a pleasant hour. So do I, somebody said. On a sofa of state in front of all sat the President and Mrs. Davis. Little Maggie Davis was one of the child actresses. Her parents had a right to be proud of her. With her flashing black eyes, she was a marked figure on the stage. She is a handsome creature, and she acted her part admirably. The shrine was beautiful beyond words. The Sims and Ives families are Roman Catholic, and understand getting up that sort of thing. First came the Palmer's Gray, then Mrs. Ives, a solitary figure, the loveliest of penitent women. The Eastern pilgrims were delightfully costumed. We could not understand how so much Christian piety could come clothed in such odalisque robes. Mrs. Old, as a queen, was as handsome and regal as heart could wish for. She was accompanied by a very satisfactory king, whose name, if I ever knew, I have forgotten. There was a resplendent knight of St. John, and then an American Indian. After their orisons, they all knelt and laid something on the altar as a votive gift. Burton Harrison, the president's handsome young secretary, was gotten up as a big brave in a dress presented to Mr. Davis by Indians for some kindness he showed them years ago. It was a complete warrior's outfit, scant as that is. The feathers stuck in the back of Mr. Harrison's head had a charmingly comic effect. He had to shave himself as clean as a baby, or he could not act the beardless chief, spotted tail, billy bowlegs, big thunder, or whatever his character was. So he folded up his loved and lost mustache, the Christianized Red Indian, and laid it on the altar, the most sacred treasure of his life, the witness of his most heroic sacrifice, on the shrine. Senator Hill of Georgia took me in to supper, where were ices, chicken salad, oysters, and champagne. The President came in alone, I suppose, for while we were talking after supper, and your humble servant was standing between Mrs. Randolph and Mrs. Stannard, he approached offered me his arm, and we walked off, oblivious of Mr. Senator Hill. Remember this, ladies, and forgive me for recording it, but Mrs. Stannard and Mrs. Randolph are the handsomest women in Richmond. I am no older than they are, or younger either, sad to say. Now the President walked with me slowly up and down that long room, and our conversation was of the saddest. Nobody knows so well as he the difficulties which beset this hard-driven Confederacy. He has a voice which is perfectly modulated, a comfort in this loud and rough soldier world. I think there is a melancholy cadence in his voice at times, of which he is unconscious when he talks of things as they are now. 
My husband was so intensely charmed with Hetty Carey that he declined at the first call to accompany his wife home in the twenty-five-dollar-an-hour carriage. He ordered it to return. When it came, his wife, a good manager, packed the Careys and him in with herself, leaving the other two men who came with the party, when it was divided into trips, to make their way home in the cold. At our door, near daylight of that bitter cold morning, I had the pleasure to see my husband, like a man, stand and pay for that carriage. Today he is pleased with himself, with me, and with all the world, says if there was no such word as fascinating, you would have to invent one to describe Hetty Carey. End of chapter 16, part 2